There was a time when I was facing a possible felony sentence. Many of you guys know my testimony, but some of you don't. Now, I had gotten arrested, uh, frankly, for a trumped-up charge, and it was for having martial arts weapons in my trunk. I had studied martial arts. They were in the trunk. And, in fact, a police officer told me to put them in the trunk, and so I assumed that that was okay. He didn't tell me to remove them entirely from my car in a previous uh, traffic incident here. So I left them in my trunk, and uh, one day I was arrested for this. And the people that my family consulted with wanted me to sue the police. Uh, I didn't want to, and the case was eventually thrown out of court because it had no basis. <laughs> Let me just be clear. <clears throat> um, but even though the, co- the consultants were confident that it was an unlawful arrest, it didn't stop me from worry. The highlight here is the worry, not the unlawful arrest. The the highlight is the worry, right? I'm facing a possible felony sentence. All I knew was that I was looking at real jail time. All I knew was that it would, in fact, if I was charged, it would, in fact, hinder me from getting a decent job, right? If you apply for a job, they ask, have you ever committed a felony or been charged with a felony? And, you know, I want to tell the truth. I knew that it would make it difficult for me to find a place to live because on your, you know, apartment applications, that's what you got to write. Facing the sentence of being charged and convicted as a felon was a horrible experience for me at 18 years old. But when the case was thrown out of court, there was so much freedom. Can you imagine, right? Your ex- expectation is you're looking forward to this, you're looking toward this day when the judge is going to give you a sentence and pronounce some sort of sentence upon you. And then when it was thrown out of account, there was so much freedom, right? Freedom in now facing the charge and the sentence. Freedom in not having to think about the court date anymore. Freedom to not have to think about jail time that's going to come up. Freedom to think about doing whatever I wanted to do. I could leave the state if I wanted to. Freedom from what hung over me. Freedom, friends, is a wonderful thing. And I know some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about in relation to what I was facing. Well, friends, in the book of Romans, which we have been going through for the last handful of weeks here, basically, God brings charges, not trumped-up charges, but legitimate charges against every human being that has ever lived. The charges are that we have rebelled against Him as King, and one day, in fact, just the Bible says, we will stand before the righteous God where He will carry out his judgment eternally. That is what the Bible says hangs over man's head. And whether or not we agree, that is the day that we should be concerned about. But friends, our passage this morning says that there is a way for sinners to be saved. There is a way for sinners to be saved. Please turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 26. Today we consider what many people think to be the most crucial verses in the entire Bible, in fact. Reason being is that it tells us, once again, how sinners can be freed from the very judgment of God. How sinners can be saved, and that is good news. I'll give you a bit of background if you're joining with us for the first time uh, as we go through this letter to the Roman Christians And it is, without doubt, or Paul is exceedingly clear about the judgment of God. 
right? We don't, if Paul is clear, right? If God himself is clear, we want to be clear too. All people, he says, stand before God condemned because really of the sin of idolatry. We don't honor God as we ought to. We don't give thanks to God as we ought to. Instead, we trade away his glory. We exchange his glory. We've opted to be really our own gods living for our own desires, honoring our very own selves. We read of this legal pronouncement on all people here in three, uh, 3.10. Look there. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No, there is nobody righteous. The Bible is so very clear about this, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the consequence is, of course, that God will judge sinners. So if you look over to 118, we're still reviewing here, 118, the consequence for sinning against God, verse 18, chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, right? That's temporal judgment. And then he, he goes on and talks about how there is judgment eternally. Go ahead and look at 319 to 20. 319 to 20. This is the passage we looked at last week. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. In other words, it judges us so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, what he's talking about there, every mouth being stopped and the whole world being held accountable to God. There, that's ultimately talking about eternal punishment. That's God's justice being carried out in hell, the Bible says. On that day, every running mouth, every mouth that runs to find an excuse will, in fact, be stopped as they stand before the righteous judge. Now, if you're visiting with us here today, the primary sin, once again, we want to highlight this, the primary sin here that we're going to be judged for is not acknowledging God as we ought to. But instead, what we have been doing, we haven't been acknowledging God as we ought to. Instead, we've been living as if we were God, living as we want to, doing what we want to. Now, just pause for a moment there. That would be, that. sorry, that would not be a problem right? Dethroning God, living how we want to, doing what we want. That would not be a problem if God were your water boy, if God were your heavenly cheerleader, or if God were your life coach that you got on speed dial so that you can give him a call as he helps you along your journey to be God. But God is not as petty and insignificant as you want him to be. He is creator. So Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The Lord is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So if that is true, right, that means that God has rights over us, his creation. Not only is he creator, he is Lord. As Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, right? So he rules over his entire creation. He is Lord, master. And not only is he creator and Lord, but he's also king. So Psalm 93.1 reads, The Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. Indeed, the Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. So, right, as a king, his law is over us. He rules over us. So, friends, that, according to the Bible, is who we brushed off. I'm guessing, friends, you don't even brush off your nagging mother like this. 
I'm guessing you don't brush off your annoying brother or sister like this. You don't even brush off your grouchy boss in the ways that the Bible says that we have brushed off God, the Creator, the Lord, the King. And this disregard of God comes with consequences. Now, some people wonder, now why is God so sensitive? Which to me certainly is an odd question, right? Because no one here, right? No one would question a loving wife's sensitivity. I've used this illustration before. No one would question a loving wife's sensitivity if she came home to her husband and found him replacing all of her photos with his exes. Right, that's the exchange here. It's the glory of the one who ought to have the glory now being exchanged. He's being exchanged out or she's being exchanged out for the lesser things. We would have no problem justifying that wife's anger, that wife's sensitivity, hurt feelings, betrayal. Right? Isn't she justified? That's what's going on with God. We have given away his place to lesser things. The Bible calls that idolatry. In fact, the Bible even calls that adultery. He goes on, though. It speaks about the heart motives in the book of Romans. He says that trading in God, if you're doing that, if you're committing adultery against God like that, that is actual hostility towards the Creator, Lord, King. That's rebellion against God, which is worthy of judgment. Now, as we've looked very much at Romans 1, Romans 2, and a little bit of Romans 3, right, we see him gathering up this argument, right? He's already talked about how all people stand condemned, whether you are a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, that's how the Jews viewed the world, and then whether or not you are a Jew, right? All stand condemned. He says our mouths will be stopped. We are guilty before God. So it would be entirely natural and logical for Paul in our passage today, as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to hang over our heads the weight of eternal punishment, right? That would be where the natural conclusion would go, right? What does the punishment actually look like? Making us feel the full weight of the bad news, but he doesn't. Now, we as Christians, you know, we know where he's going, Romans 3, 21 to 26, right? We, we, for those of us familiar with the Bible, we know what he's going to say. But here his readers didn't. And if you're new to Christianity, you're exploring the Bible or new to Romans 3 and are a Christian here, right? You don't exactly know what he's, where he's going, but he doesn't go in that direction. Instead, he goes in a completely different direction and talks about the good news. So we got to remember, right? The book of Romans is fundamentally about the good news. That is what the gospel means. Gospel means good news. And the bad news of Romans 1, 2, and part of chapter 3 is it sets up the good news. So it is true, Romans 1, 2, and a little bit of 3, it is true. God has revealed his wrath. But it is also true that he has revealed his righteousness unto salvation. So today's passage tells us that sinners can be saved. The righteous can be saved by God's very own righteousness. Uh, Look there at Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26, and I'll go ahead and read that. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You hear that language of just, justifier, righteous, righteousness. That is all legal categories. And our passage speaks very much about how sinners can be righteous because of the righteousness of God. So we're just going to look at this righteousness revealed, the righteousness that saves. And this brings us to point number one. If you're taking notes here, write down God's righteousness revealed. We see the wonderful change of direction there in the first two verses of, uh, of our passage today. And we got to keep in mind here that it comes after Romans 19 and 20. I'll go ahead and look there, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law so that there would be judgment, right? That's what he's saying. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20 says that by, by works, no one will be saved. All in their works ought to be devastated. But then he says, but now... You feel that wonderful change of direction right there. But now. We might expect him to say, if he were continuing wanting to hold up the hold over us, the weight of judgment to say, and now God is going to judge you. But he doesn't say that. He says here, but now. So there's a shift. There's a contrast here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I am so thankful for that. But now, right? I'm, I hope you guys are thankful for that. But now, I mean, you realize that we have spent not just one sermon on the wrath of God, not just two sermons on the wrath of God, but five sermons on the wrath of God. Week after week after week, just walking through the book of Romans, trying to be clear, as God is clear, just teaching what's in the Bible. And of course, in those sermons, we look at the good news in those sermons. But here in our passage today, the whole passage is the good news. It is all gospel. This is like gas, a gasp of fresh air for the suffocating, for those suffocating in their sin. And as we go along in Romans, we see God's wrath against unrighteous men right it's romans 1 2 beginning 3 that's god's wrath against unrighteous men but now in the revelation of jesus christ god works for the benefit of unrighteous men you gotta see that that is that is strange for god to do that here we read romans 1 22 and 3 again right we see there god's wrath against unrighteous men but now in jesus God works for the benefit of unrighteous men. Here he's just picking up, once again, the theme verses that he already put down here. You look at Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is really good news. We've read of God's wrath against unrighteous men, but now in Jesus Christ, God works for the benefit of unrighteous men. But did you know that even though we know God's judgment will come against unrighteous men, it has always been his mode of operation to work for the benefit of unrighteous men? 
God's plan to save sinners was always God's plan. How's that for looking and staring at God's character? And we ask the question, why would God save? Well, we, we have the opportunity to look at his character here, his faithfulness. He's always been working for the salvation of sinners. So look at verse 21. It says here, the manifestation of God's righteousness is apart from the law, but witnessed to by the law. What he means there is you can't obtain righteousness of God, the righteousness of God that you need to stand before the righteous God by works of the law, by your own morality, by keeping the golden rule, by being good, etc. But the law directs us to the righteousness we need. So if you thought Christianity is all about rule keeping, you know, if you just keep the rules, for example, then you are saved. Friends, let this passage speak against that error. The Bible says salvation or the righteousness of God cannot be obtained through the works of the law. You look there once again at verse 20, for uh, chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Are you saying there that no one will be justified or declared righteous by God through the works of the law? Now, that teaching is called legalism. And some of you guys have come from very and in some ways very official legalistic backgrounds, right? This teaching, if you're not so familiar with it, this teaching says, I get in good with God based on the good that I do. I get in good with God based on the good I do. So this can be, this good that we do, could be described in legalistic false teaching as I keep the laws of the Old Testament. It could be I keep the laws of the New Testament, and therefore I get justification, I get righteousness through that. It could be morality, once again, or this keeping of the golden rule. But again, friends, this teaching is actually anti-gospel. It is against the gospel. Salvation is not by works, but by grace through faith in Christ alone. Works cannot save. You look at Romans chapter 2.20, as we already did. Works of the law brings out sin and exposes sin. Friends, salvation is by grace alone. If you look there in 3.28... You look, therefore, we hold that no one is justified by faith. Or sorry, let me be clear here. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You can go to Ephesians. Let's go and turn to the book of Ephesians, which Jared read some very, very important verses for us uh, for our assurance of, of pardon after the prayer of confession there. You look there at at 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He goes on, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Once again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Just to be clear, if you don't understand the word grace, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is not by works, but in fact, it is by grace. So repeat here. Let's repeat. We cannot obtain righteousness through the law, but we ought to be directed to righteousness from the law. Again, Paul writes to some very moral Jews who boasted in the possession of the law, and even to some degree doing the law, for example, circumcision. For the, so the natural objection, if you're hearing, if you're one of those moralistic Jews who boast in possession of the law, when you hear Paul preaching this gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ, 
by his grace. You say, so what are you saying? You're saying that we should get rid of the Old Testament? The answer, Paul says, is no. You look over at 331. You look over there at 331. He says, that, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says that by no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. He says that we should value the law, even uphold the law, because the Old Testament is designed to lead us to the righteousness of Christ. All right, so again, we want to look at the character of God, the mind of God, who brings salvation to sinners. And here he works for the benefit of sinners. This is God working for your benefit, even though you are the rebels. How does God work for the benefit of those who rebelled against him or how does the law help us uh, how does it point us to righteousness the first way it pronounces guilt that we might be pardoned by grace it pronounces guilt that we might be pardoned by grace we looked about we looked at this last week the law exposes so that we might find grace in jesus christ it might make us desperate for the savior right romans chapter 7 verse 7 says that we would not or paul would not have known what it was to sin Unless there was the law. The law exposes sin. Not good. But what it's supposed to do is supposed to lead us, direct us to the grace found in Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the law there. Praise God for his grace as he works for us for the benefit of sinners, directing us to find grace. It, basically, the thought there is, hey, I'm happy to have the law there. Give me guilt that I might find, that I might get God's grace. The second way it directs us to God's righteousness more specifically tied to the passage here today, is because the Old Testament testifies to God's grace in Jesus Christ. It says that, that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. When it says the law and the prophets, that's an official way of speaking about the Old Testament. Paul here is referring to something he brought up in the opening of his letter. We're doing a lot of turning today. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. This testifying, this speaking of the righteousness of God is found in the Old Testament. You look there at verse 1, Paul, he's just, this is just an introduction. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised, that is, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The Old Testament spoke of the day. It promised a day uh, where God would do something new, where the day of salvation would dawn where he would make a new covenant with his people. You can think of the new covenant there found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. You can write that down if you want to look at it later. We're thinking of Ezekiel here, chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And this new covenant found in the blood of Jesus Christ is a better covenant than the covenant he made with Moses and Israel. Far better, because in that covenant with the law, the people broke the covenant. But in this one, God does something new in Jesus Christ where he causes us to love him. He works in our hearts in such a way. He takes out our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh and causes us to walk in his ways. And this new work would happen through God's anointed one. Also translated, the anointed one is translated Messiah based off of the Hebrew word. It is also translated the Christ based on the Greek word. Right, this is Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ that the Old Testament spoke of. You can also read Isaiah chapter 61 where it speaks of the arrival of God's chosen and anointed one on the day of salvation. And on that day, great renewal would take place. 
And Isaiah also connects that to the pouring out of the Spirit. Friends, that's what happened in the revelation of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. The day of salvation, the doors of salvation have been flung wide to sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath. I mean, no wonder Paul, as a missionary, wants to take that gospel to the very ends of the earth because now, in the coming of Jesus Christ, God's new work has begun. You see how God works for the benefit of unrighteous sinners in Jesus Christ and also in the law as it testifies to Jesus Christ? On a note of a practical application here, we should not, therefore, throw away God's law. Some of you guys might be thinking, okay, well, I come from a legalistic background. What do I do with the Old Testament? Should we get rid of it? Then the answer is no. We want to actually appreciate it. Why do we appreciate it? Because it actually points us, once again, to Jesus Christ. So even if I'm going to preach in the Old Testament, and I'm preaching, let's say, Deuteronomy 20 and 29, where it talks about the blessings and then the curses of the law, right? Even reading the curses, I I could do my devotions in the curses of the law. Why is it? Because even though God tells me about every single wrong that I might have done, I go to Jesus Christ. I go and get grace for every single wrong that I have done. And all I do is come to appreciate the law all the more because all it does is expose my guilt that I might find grace in Jesus Christ again and again and again. And not only that, though, but it it literally speaks of the coming Jesus Christ. It speaks of the Messiah who will do this wonderful work of salvation in our lives. So that's point number one. God's righteousness has been manifested in Jesus Christ. Point number one. But why? This brings us to point number two. Point number two, God's righteousness available. Why does God manifest his righteousness? It's just so so that sinners would have it, right? That's why he manifests it. It's so that sinners would have it. Point number two is God's righteousness available. The reason why we need God's righteousness is because if we are to be at one with a righteous God, of course we need his righteousness. How does God, the holy God, have fellowship with an unholy people? And so, therefore, we need it as we are going to stand before him. Our passage today says that that happens through faith in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, salvation or his righteousness is available to everybody who believes. We can, in fact, be justified or declared righteous in God's sight. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 22. Now, in this verse, before we actually read it, in this verse, there are so many logical steps that explain why Jesus, why Jesus was put forward, what this righteousness is, how do I get it, who, who, who do I find it in, who is it available to, how is it offered? There's just so many logical steps here that really help us understand who God is and what the gospel is. So in verse 22, we first look at you know, these logical steps, these logical steps that Paul is making, we see how God's righteousness is available. How and in whom. How and in whom. It's very clear. Verse 22. It is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how? Through faith for the believing. And in whom is it available? It is faith in Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he has done, right? So we have the how and then we have the in whom is God's righteousness available now he's talking a lot about faith here let's just pause for one second the culture holds out some very interesting options for this so-called christian faith right the culture people who go by the name christian and they might say oh you know christianity is all about blind faith 
And what they mean by blind faith is that is faith not based in fact. It is faith uh, that is impossible to be verified, you know, in terms of the things that we believe. That's actually wrong, absolutely wrong. There is, in fact, a real Jesus, a Jesus who actually lived, a Jesus who actually revealed himself to Paul. There were actually apostles, right? Historians, non-Christian and Christians will acknowledge that there is actually, there was a real Jesus who claimed to be alive after he was crucified. I mean, nowadays it is kind of fashionable to say that Jesus didn't even exist. But in actuality, that's that's as absurd, absurd as someone who says that the Holocaust never happened. There are people who say that. It doesn't take very much, very long to go and find the historical accounts to say, yes, it actually happened. Friends, the same thing happened with Jesus. He actually lived. So this idea of blind faith is absolutely wrong. There's the other, our culture also likes to uh, speak of faith in terms of, hey, keep the faith, faith, just believe in yourself. You know, if you're fans of Miley Cyrus, you know, I'm sorry, but she's wrong. Just believe in yourself. Keep the faith, you know, keep on climbing that mountain. That's not Christian faith here that we're talking about. Faith is trusting, submitting, relying upon Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. It is relying, it is trusting, it's throwing yourself down upon him uh, in relation to who he is and what he has done. He is God, the Lord, who is worthy of all honor and glory. The reason why faith is so important in the passage here is because what it is set against. The passage, Paul sets faith in Christ against the works of the law, right? 19 and 20, you're talking about the works of the law. But then here he brings up faith. We've already seen, though, that works cannot save you or add to your salvation. It is faith in Christ alone that saves. And we see this in the rest of chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at this more in chapter 4 in relation to how does faith and works actually work together? Like, how should we understand those things? Of course, it doesn't mean that works are not important. They are. But God-glorifying works always accompany true salvation, but works do not bring salvation. So those are the first two logical steps here. You have the how is it made available and in whom is it made available. We've talked about this Jesus, the who. We've talked about who he is. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. He's the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one who will bring the dawning of a new day. And if you just look here, go back to chapter 1, it speaks more about who this Jesus is, right? You look there, he, in verse 2, he is the one that the prophets and the Holy Scriptures prophesied about concerning God's Son, that is his eternal Son. Who is he? He is the one who is descended from David according to the flesh, right? He is a king, just as King David was a king. He comes from David's lineage. But then upon his resurrection, he is raised in power and seated upon on high, overseeing everything, and all things are put under subjection to Jesus Christ. He is, friends, once again, the Lord. He is God. So that's the who. He is the Savior, the one who's come to deliver. In terms of another logical step here, Paul tells us, well, to whom is this righteousness available? We looked at the how, we looked at the in whom, now we look at the to whom. To whom is this righteousness available? It says there, God's righteousness has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's, that's, that, that's the who there. To whom is, to who is this righteousness made available? Now this all is really important. 
Because in a passage that we looked at earlier, he makes it very clear, if you look there at Romans chapter 3, verse 9, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everybody. You look there at verse 11, it says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks to forget. All have turned aside. So he reaches back and picks up that all in effort to show us that God works for the benefit of unrighteous men, all by his grace, by picking up that all, and he's saying it is for all who believe. He says here that all can be saved. Look there, for there is no distinction. Look there in the verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Oh, that's a wonderful sentence. If you want to memorize something, if you struggle with legalism, wanting to earn salvation according to work, memorize here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Bad news. But friends, just let that sentence just roll on and are justified, that is declared righteous in his sight by his grace as a gift. I mean, imagine how strange that is. Once again, look at the character of God. God summons you. He calls your account. He calls you, the unrighteous sinner, to come before him, and he says, you have fallen short of my glory. You have transgressed my law. You stand condemned without excuse. And one day I will hold you to account for your sins, and your mouth will be stopped before me. Would you like to be justified in my sight? Not only, is he, not only is he almost asking us if we want to be justified, he's saying, I will justify you, friends. You are ungodly and unrighteous, but I can, I can justify you. That's the character of God here. That's the God that you are dealing with, sinner. A God who delights in doling out justification, declaring people righteous. He loves hammering his gavel on his throne, declaring unrighteous sinners righteous before his sight. It's strange to think that God in his righteousness stands against unrighteous men in his wrath. But yet, in his love and in his grace, in Jesus Christ, he works for the benefit of unrighteous men. To whom is it available? His righteousness is available to all who turn from their sins and believe on him. He takes us he continues to take us on this tour here of who this Jesus is, or this tour about salvation. There's another logical help here. Why does God make it available? Why does God make it available? The answer is, it's because he's gracious. That's why he makes it available. I mean, when you have sinned, or when you have been sinned against, right? We're trying to understand the character of God. When you yourself have been sinned against, you know, too often, I'm sure you have responded in sin. Just think about when someone really ticked you off. Didn't you want to respond in such a way that was exacting? Giving them a taste of your own medicine? We want to respond in like anger against them? Well, friends, God is not exacting to those who sin against Him. Our passage says He helps those who sin against Him. Right? You are unrighteous. You are deserving of my holy wrath. But in Christ through faith, I will declare you righteous all by my grace. Thank God he is gracious in character. You guys know the definition of grace? The definition of grace is that God gives us what we do not deserve. God gives us what we do not deserve. That is salvation. 
And of course, the concept of grace also includes the idea of mercy, that he withholds, God withholds that which we deserve, judgment. He gives us what we don't deserve, that is salvation, but he withholds that which we do deserve, that is judgment. These are free gifts, right? These are free gifts to the sinner. And so salvation is free by God's grace. But let us be clear here. It is free to us, but at the cost of Christ's life. It is free to us, but at the cost of Christ's life. That's why people say that grace is an acronym. And, you know, there's a lot of people who use this, that it is God's riches at Christ's expense. It is riches for us at the cost of his son's life. I'm sure if you're like me, you might still struggle to want to work for God's favor or work for God's salvation. But friends, to do that rips God's grace out of salvation, doesn't it? If salvation is what you work for, then salvation is your wage. We're going to talk more about this in Romans chapter 4 but or even uh, next week. But I'm sure you might understand this, right? If salvation is something you work for, then salvation is something that you are worthy of. It is your wage. Right, a wage is something that you work for. Look over to Romans chapter 4. We see here that Paul addresses the, these types of things. He says there, Now to the one who works, his wages are not count, not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So let's be clear, right? While it is free to us, it cost Christ his life. And Paul, as he writes this passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to pause on this fact, right? We're having this grand tour of salvation, and now he's taking us on this tour of of who this Jesus is. So if you are tempted to think that you can win God's righteousness through doing good deeds or pleasing God through works, God wants you, friends, to pause and look at the only work that secures the righteousness of God. Verse 24. You look for clarification, after clarification about this work of Jesus accomplished on the cross. I'll go ahead and read that. Oh, let's go ahead and start in 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is declared righteous. And here's where he begins this this clarification. It is by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who is this Christ Jesus? It is he whom God put forward, and how, and as what did God put him forward? It is as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Clarification after clarification about who this Jesus is. Based on this verse, we see that God has graciously worked for the benefit of sinners in Christ Jesus. We see that God redeems sinners through his son in the verse. He redeems sinners through his son. This redemption there that's in the verse, this is deliverance language. <clears throat> and this term to redeem was used uh, a lot. Um, but what it would have stood out to uh, the Jews and actually the Gentiles who were actually quite familiar with the Old Testament, uh, this language of redemption was used for the exodus. That is when God redeemed his people out of slavery under Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 7, 8 reads, The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So you have this idea of freedom. 
Freedom not out of a slavery to a nation, but freedom from slavery to sin. And even in the Gentile world there, and there was slavery, it, wasn't, it isn't quite like it was, it is, um, it has been, uh, let's say, that marked America's slavery. Then you could buy your freedom. And that was known to be manumission, right? You're going to work for your freedom. You, so, for example, if I'm a king and I go and conquer a different area, I'm going to take people as prisoners of war, and they're actually going to become my slaves. And then in the ancient world, that's what happened. And those slaves actually could buy back their freedom. Or I could send word back to their home country and say, look, I have this person, gather up enough money, and I will let this person go free. That is to that is redeeming a slave. That's the language that's used here, this redemption. It speaks of freedom. Freedom that you, friends, I'm sure know about. Friends, some of you guys might even be struggling with, with enslavement to sin even right now, and you so desperately want freedom. You might wonder, how can I stop doing what I find myself so wanting to do? And you want freedom. Friends, here it talks about how Jesus Christ is the avenue to freedom, and Christ actually purchases your freedom from sin. Not only does God redeem, God redeems through His Son's blood. Another clarification. It is whom He whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Of course, he's talking about sacrifice here. God sacrificed his very own son. Now, propitiation, it's a big word. I recognize that. It's a very important word. Some of your Bibles might actually read sacrifice of atonement. The word means, if, you want to, if you're taking notes here, the word propitiation means a blood sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. A blood sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. So in this term and in this concept, we see how once again the law is pointing to the righteousness of God as seen in Jesus Christ. This term and the concept pointed, uh, or, or what's happening here is that Paul is grabbing from this Old Testament idea, this understanding of the law, where God called his people to worship him through the sacrificial system. And once a year, what would happen is that the high priest would enter into the most holy places of Israel's worship of God. And he would go in carrying the blood of an unblemished sacrifice. And all of Israel would be gathered together, worshiping God on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go in with the blood. And in that place there, he would, he would offer up the sacrifice, not only for the sins of all of the people, but for his own sins. But friends, these sacrifices never saved. It never effected somebody's salvation. As Hebrews 10.4 reads, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But they did, in fact, point to the perfect sacrifice that could and would affect the forgiveness of God's people. Friends, Christ is that very sacrifice whom God put forward. Through Christ's blood, God satisfies his wrath. This is what the word means, a blood sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. Once, we can think about, you know, once his face was towards sinners in anger, but on account of his sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, God then looks upon his people with great favor. Friends, let us not move too quickly over the heart of a person who delights in getting people out of trouble. Let us not move too quickly over the heart of a person who delights in getting people out of trouble. It was God's own plan to send his son at the right time to save sinners. It wasn't man who came up with the idea. 
and then got God somehow to agree with it. It was all God. It is God's plan. Not only is it God's plan, he does it. He fulfills it out of his own volition. The Bible says that Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross in Hebrews 12 too. And he does that, friends, all at his own risk and cost. It is his own plan. He does it by, he fulfills it of, of his own volition, and it comes at his own risk and cost. And in his justice, he has every right to put you forward, to call your account at any time that he pleases. You realize that? He has freedom and he is just and he is righteous to put you forward to call your account and have you pay for your own sins. But it is his idea and fulfills his idea according to his own volition at his own cost as he puts forward not you but his eternal son to die on the cross for your sins. What kind of God does that? He takes on your judgment as your substitute, bearing your wrath at the cost of his son. Friends, this is great, great evidence of his love for sinners. This is why he does. He does this because he loves sinners and he delights in saving them. He delights in justifying them. Romans 5, 8 says, for God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 39 says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a wonderful Savior. If you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, you know, I recognize that as we talk about wrath, and maybe you've joined us even for the last, you know, handful of sermons in Romans, and I recognize that with all this talk about God's wrath, you might be put off a little bit. But friends, I hope you see the grace of God in Jesus Christ. For people who deserve God's wrath, he gives them pardon according to his plan of his own free choice, all at his expense because he loves us. Now let me ask you this. Why would you disregard a giver and a gift like that? And we know this so practically, right? One time uh, when we were uh, about to have one of our children, uh, we didn't have any life insurance. We were in a very new place. We are in a new country in the Middle East. And one of the elders of our church gave us a couple thousand dollars just because, just because he wanted to help us. He gave us a couple thousand dollars so that we can help pay for the medical bills. Now, we know in a monetary gift like that, why would I disregard the giver and a gift like that? And what that does is it helps us pay for the C-section that my wife ended up having and my, my child was good, you know? And he did that all because he loved us. Now, could we have paid for that? Yes. But I, I would be stupid not to acknowledge his love for us, his care for us, as is shown in this monetary gift. Now, friends, you if you know that, if you understand that, and you're so appreciative of those who help you, why would you not appreciate your very creator, Lord and King, who gives his very own son for you? to deliver you out of eternal condemnation, all because he loves you. What can compare to the work of Jesus Christ? His perfect, righteous life as a sacrificial death for you. His work is the only work that satisfies God's righteous requirement for sinners. 
I mean, again, non-Christian, what work are you planning to bring before a holy and righteous God when he calls you to account? I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I haven't killed anyone or at least not as many people as that guy over there. I have a nice job and a decent family or I follow the golden rule. You know, friends, those things might give you some confidence if your rule of righteousness is yourself and you just so happen to determine it. But friends, the one who calls you to account is not you for your sins, but it is God. God says the best works done by a sinner who disregards God in his heart are as nasty and worthless and as a filthy scum-soaked rag. But friends, this is what should get us. He knows our problem, which is the whole reason why he spoke into our situation with his word. This is the whole reason why he sent messengers to call us back to him, many of whom were killed for their own faith. And is ultimately why he spoke into our situation in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God. Friends, this is the God of the Bible who gives his very own self to see sinners secured in his love and freed from his very own judgment. And not only that, but declared righteous in his sight. And Christ is to be received by faith. Friends, let me encourage you to turn away from your sins and do this now. Do not presume upon God's grace and his mercy. But trust God that he will do what he will do. I mean, that's why we read Psalm 51. If you... Look there, Psalm chapter 51. We don't pick these scripture passages at random. This very much has to do with our passage today. If we are guilty, we want to know what should we do in that guilt. Well, here, David, he just goes right to God with his guilt. He knows it. He's not going to hide it. He's not going to pretend it doesn't exist. He just says, have mercy on me, O God, in verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. He does not say, because I'm so good, because I've followed the golden rule, because I give the charity. He says, according to your steadfast love. So what he's doing here, he's pleading that God would be who he is, that he would remain faithful to his very own character, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He knows God is like that. And so he goes right to God for the grace, the mercy, the steadfast love that he knows will save him. Repent of your sins. Trust that God is who he says he is. And you will be saved, forgiven of your sin, declared righteous in his sight. In point number one, we saw God's righteousness revealed. In point number two, we say God, we see God's righteousness available. There is one more point. And now we come to point number three, God's righteousness is demonstrated. God's righteousness is demonstrated. We've spoken a lot about God's character in saving sinners. We just talked about God saving sinners because he loves sinners. But in these particular verses that we're looking at, verses 25 and 26, in these particular verses, he returns to an issue that he brought up earlier. And it actually isn't the love of God. We know, of course, the rest of Romans talks about how God put forward his son because he loved sinners. That's very clear. I read those verses in Romans. But here, he doesn't address love. He addressed God's righteousness. He addressed God's righteousness. If you remember, as he went around preaching the gospel, it seems that people heard this gospel and then charged him with saying something. And so uh, he's pretending to have this dialogue, right? And the question that he himself brings up, assuming 
the objection is, what are you talking about? Is God even righteous then? So you see there, if God's wrath is against sinners, but God works for the benefit of sinners, well, what happens to his wrath? Like, what happens to all of that? Is God righteous in all of this? So that's the thinking behind this. If you were a Jew and you heard Paul talk about the about the guilt and condemnation of everybody, and then all of a sudden you hear Paul talking about salvation being available to all by faith, you might wonder, so how does God's justice and righteousness work? If all can be justified by faith, what happens to God's righteous judgment against them? And Paul answers, right, Christ on the cross is the very demonstration of his righteousness. God's righteousness is upheld. In the cross of Jesus Christ. It gives a straightforward answer there in verse 25. It starts with because. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Now there, when he says he passed over former sins, it doesn't mean that God never judged sin. It's clear in Romans 1 that God judges sin. God's wrath is revealed. And then he goes on to talk about uh, even eternal judgment. But when it says here that God passed over sins, the point is that God did not hold or he did not exact a full and immediate punishment for sin. God did not exact a full and immediate punishment for sin. Now, you you guys might wonder, right? If you're visiting, you're thinking about who is this God? Should I believe in him? I'm exploring Christianity. Does, does this mean that he is righteous? Because I don't want to follow an unrighteous God. That's a legitimate question. If God winks at sin, if God says, okay, yeah, you 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 go on sin, but no, I'm going to judge these folks. That's not a God worth worth worshiping. You don't want to worship a God who winks at sin, who is therefore not justice, or not just, not righteous. That would be a compromise of his justice and righteousness. So Paul says, in the cross, God's justice and righteousness was in fact upheld. The reason why God passed over, over sins in the past was because in God's forbearance and patience, he looked forward in time and knew that the full wrath for sin of those who would repent and believe would fall upon his son as a sacrifice of atonement. Friends, God needs to judge sin. That's why those things make sense that I mentioned earlier. We see in Romans 1, 2, at the beginning of 3, that God's wrath, his righteousness is against unrighteous sinners. Like, that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. You want somebody, you want your authority to be righteous. You don't want authorities to wink at sin. That's obvious. That's why God's wrath stands against unrighteous men. But but what floors us once again is that God works for the benefit of unrighteous men. So God needs to apply judgment and punishment. If he does, once again, then he is compromised. But in Christ on the cross, God shows himself to be righteous. You look there in verse 26. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see there that his justice is maintained, his character. He, pre- he shows that he is the just one, even justifying those who have faith in Jesus. The main point here is that God always acts according to his own character. The cross of Christ reveals so much of his character in the cross we see God maintaining his justice in judging sin, don't we? Don't we? Praise God, he does, right? Because we want a just God. In the cross, we see God maintaining his love, his mercy, and his grace, justifying sinners, extending forgiveness and pardon to those who repent of their sins and believe on him by faith. In the cross, God shows himself fierce, both in his opposition to sin and in his love for sinners. 
fierce justice against unrighteousness, but fierce in love to buy back sinners, to redeem them. Thank God that he is who he is. And according to his just ways, somehow, according to his just ways, sinners who repent of their sins can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. What are the byproducts of God's will in manifesting his saving righteousness in Jesus Christ? God's justice is maintained. Sinners are forgiven. God is glorified. And people delight in God's steadfast love. It's not just a legal declaration, but it's actually adoption. So if you want to think about what happens legally in justification or salvation, God declares us righteous as he takes upon your sin, as Jesus takes upon your sin. God then gives you Christ's righteousness. He declares you righteous in his sight. But then also legally, he adopts you as his very own child. We're going to get to adoption in the book of Romans. So we're left wondering, like, how in the world do we respond? God's justice is upheld. Okay, I get that. God judges sin. God fulfills his wrath. He also demonstrates his love by offering his son to take on the wrath and punishment that we ourselves deserve so that we might be free. Friends, what do you do? How do you respond to this? Well, the answer is to worship with great thanksgiving and appreciation for the Savior. This is what Paul does. Romans eleven thirty three reads, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Praise God for the salvation that he has made available through his eternal son, Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been revealed. His righteousness has been made available. And his righteousness has been demonstrated in Christ's righteous life, in his death as he bore the sins of everybody, all who would repent and believe, And as he was raised in three days after that, he declares that payment has been made in full for his people. Praise God for God's free grace and his righteousness in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the freedom that Christ has won for us. That our shackles are broken to sin. Even when we were dead in our sin and trespasses, even though we were under sin and though sin had reigned over us, Lord Jesus, we see your power in the cross as you broke these chains. Lord, we thank you that in you, through your shed blood on the cross, we can now be free. We can be forgiven. We can be adopted. We can be declared righteous in your sight. What a mystery it is that even though we are your rebels, you of your own volition would initiate giving us grace. You would hold off punishment until the right time came. And not only would you hold off the punishment, you would steer this punishment away from us and onto the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, you are a good and loving God. We know that even as people help us, as they are givers of good gifts to us, or we see a little bit of your unfathomable, unsearchable grace in Jesus Christ. 
Father, we thank you for all the riches that are found in Jesus Christ, especially as we look at free grace in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In your name we pray, amen.